Hey, uh, step number one, make sure you're unmuted. Good morning, everybody. Uh, it's good to, uh, good to be with you guys uh, this morning. You guys doing all right? Doing well? Excellent, excellent. Well, if you don't know me, my name is John. Um, I'm, uh, I serve on staff here as our Connections Pastor. Nice to meet you unofficially, but we can make the official stuff uh, after all this uh, fun. Well, I don't know about you and your family. Um, I'm hoping I'm not alone in this, but, you know, for me and mine, uh, it's been kind of a wild January. Um, right? Can anyone else relate, right? Like anybody else in that space? Yeah, I'm getting some head nods. I, see, I know I was among friends. It's a safe place here. Uh, you see, for many of us, right, the new year is usually this kind of uh, frenetic, crazy time. So we kind of we we, ex- we kind of plan for that, right? We expect it to be a little bit more uh, chaotic than usual. So uh, when you realize, uh, when you wake up one morning, you realize, oh, it's already January 21st, um, and you're not quite sure where the time went. Um, then that's another realization kind of sets in, right? You're like, okay, this is this is this is different. This is a little unique, right? I don't know what happened. Right, Christmas was just so relaxed and chill, and I felt so uh, ready and prepared for the new year. Like 2024 was just going to be great, and then oh, 2024 came, and it just turned into this 12-speed blender. Right, right here, you know, we've got a bunch of stuff that we're really excited about here at the church. Right, ministries are getting back into gear. We've got new groups that we're launching. You know, we've got our 21 Days of Prayer initiative that we're in the middle of, and it's it's all been awesome. But with all of that comes time. Right, like ministry just needs time. And on top of that, at home, Naomi turned two, which, you know, as her dad, I expressly told her not uh, to do, or at least not to do so quickly, but like she didn't, she just did her own thing, Um, right? So we had all the celebrations and all the chaos that came with that. Uh, Janice is back, she's teaching classes again, and she's also still slinging her fancy coffee drinks, so we're adjusting our schedule a little bit for that, and uh, it's frozen outside, which, you know, we, Janice and I thought, hey, what better time to try to buy a house, so, uh, you know, we're trying to, trying to make that happen in the middle of all this, or all the, the meetings, and the money, and the inspections, and paperwork that comes with that. Right? Has anyone else ever tried this? Like, I'm just at this spot where, like, the last week or so, at the end of the day, after Janice and Naomi have gone to bed, I just walk through the house, I turn off all the lights, and I just sit at my dining room table, and I'm like, ah, quiet. It's calm. Peaceful, even. Ah. And just drink that in for a moment. Right. See, some of us, uh, even if you're not in that season this morning, here's what I know. Uh, like, you don't get very far in the, the, the real world, in the adult world, before you experience some sort of wild, chaotic season, right, where everything just seems to come at you at once. Right, seasons of drastic change, uh, be it good, right, new relationships, new jobs, new opportunities, or, or not so good. You know, seasons of loss, seasons of heartache and frustration and you know, for some of you, I know, like, we're in this spot where 2024 started off with so much optimism, right? You had so much hope, right? This is the year we're going to take a big step with our family at home. Like, we're going to be super intentional, right? This is the year I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make the most of my opportunities at work, right? Or, or this is the year, like, I'm, I'm finally going to do it. This is the year we're going to get serious about faith. We're going to take some steps. And, and you committed to some changes. And, and you know what? Like, so far, like, it's been great. You've actually stuck with them. But then life starts to push back, right? You start to to feel the chaos a little bit. You start to to feel your foundation get a little bit shaky. And then you realize, like, hey, it's taking so much energy to maintain a sense of normal that all your motivation and energy to do anything new just, it disappears. 
And so we just, we sink back into the current. We sink back into the rhythm that, that things have just, the way that things have just always happened. All right, what does this have to do with worship? All right, we're in week three of this, this, this series, Made for Worship. Um, and so it, it's, it's interesting, when we talk about worship, all of us have really learned how to worship uh, as part of uh, the rhythm of a community. Right, we learn how to worship. We learn what worship is by becoming part of a community and, and experiencing it in the community. We experience the rhythms and routines of the, the churches that we've been a part of. But what we see is, is as, as we learn to worship, the rhythm quickly becomes a routine. Right? And, and for many of us, like here in this, in this building, myself included, routine just becomes part of the story. Right? We show up at the same time every week, we grab our cup of coffee, we head to the same chairs or relatively the same area, we sing the same songs, say the same prayers, and, and in the middle of that, while that, there's, some, there's some familiarity, there's some safety in that routine, let's be honest, like routine quickly becomes, like while it becomes a source of safety and security, it quickly kind of erodes our sense of purpose. Right? Routine becomes uh, the, the reason really for our gathering. We lose the sense of why we're doing what we're doing. And which we do what we do because that's just what we've done. And that's what we're comfortable with. So this morning, really, uh, what I want to do is kind of break open our routines. So last week, uh, Rob placed the question of what before us. Right? What do we worship? And what we realized is well, we all worship something. Right? It's not a matter of if we worship. As human beings, worship is just what we're wired to do. Uh, and, and worship is not just uh, like something exterior to us, but it's, just, it's a natural part that we all just uh, jump in on. And more succinctly, so the question is not what we worship. The question more succinctly is who do we worship? And last week we saw that worship actually begins with God. Right, God isn't something we just stumble upon in the world, uh, but God, through his spirit, through his word, and through his world, actually reveals himself to us. Right, the reason we know about God is because God wants us to know him. Right, God shows us his character, his power, and his personality. And when we see God for who he is, we learn that God is actually the only real choice. In fact, God is only the safe choice when it comes to the object of our worship. Uh, God is the only one who can be trusted with our worship. So this morning, uh, we're going to take kind of the next step in that uh, process, in that journey. And, and we're going to start to unpack the question of where. Specifically, from, for our, from our perspective in our lives, where does our worship come from? And, and what we have to see first is that worship first and foremost, is our response to God. God reveals himself to us, and we respond uh, in worship. And one of the clearest, most profound statements in all of Scripture about about God revealing himself to humanity and what that means uh, comes out of the the book of Isaiah. Uh, In chapter 43, God says this through the prophet. Says this, chapter 43, verse 10. He says, You are my witnesses. This is the Lord's declaration. And my servant, whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. No God was formed before me, and there will be none after me. I, I am the Lord. 
Beside me there is no Savior. I alone declared, saved, and proclaimed, and not some foreign God among you. So you are my witnesses. This is the Lord's declaration, and I am God. Also from today on, I am he alone, and none can rescue from my power. I can, I act, and who can reverse it? Right, a striking, a powerful statement about God's uh, personality, about who he is and his capabilities. And then worship then for us is our response to that God who presents himself. So at first, let's be honest, when we encounter this God, the truth of this God overwhelms us. Right, have you ever experienced that kind of, I'll say, disorientation? Right, have you ever been kind of like spooked when you considered the fullness of who God is and what he's capable of? All right, how many of us do you remember the, the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? You watched it, you had to read it growing up, right? Remember the powerful scene where the kids stumble into this magical world, uh, into Narnia. They, they, the, the four of them, they run across Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and they're giving them the lowdown on what this world is all like. And, and in the, the process of this, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver try to describe uh, to uh, the, the kids this, this, the, the, the true king of the, the land, right? This mighty Aslan. And, um, but, but for the, the Pevensey children, uh, they're struggling to wrap their minds around who the, the, the idea of this giant lion king, it makes no sense to them. And so finally, as they're trying to figure out who this lion is, Lucy, the youngest, asks, well, of Aslan, well, he's, he's a giant lion. Like, she asks, is he safe? Right? And Mr. Beaver responds almost incredulously, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. But he's good. He's the king. See, it's, it's no small thing when you begin to understand that it doesn't matter how good you think God is, God is actually better. Right? It doesn't matter how strong you think God is, God is actually, in reality, stronger. It doesn't matter how glorious, loving, or gracious you think God is, God, as he's revealed in his word through his spirit in his world, is abundantly more than anything we can imagine him to be. You know, this year as a church uh, community, we're leaning into this idea of, of made for more. Right? And the more that we long for uh, finds both its central focus and its deepest expression, not in anything we do, but in who God is. See, worship uh, begins not with the establishing of a rhythm or a routine, but actually in their interruption. See, God gets our attention. He shakes us out of our expectation, uh, and he wakes us up to the reality of what we find ourselves in the middle of. He wakes us up to the reality of his presence and his activity. And that sensation that you get, that, that, uh, that feeling when you suddenly recognize God's presence, uh, that, like, almost like the pit in your stomach when you begin to taste the grandeur of what's going on, when you're overcome by what you see in God, when words fall away and the only response you have is silence. Right? The word connected to that in Scripture is the word awe. And for you and I, awe is where our worship begins. This whole process uh, is wonderfully captured in the Gospel of John, uh, in uh, John chapter 4, and so that's where we're going to uh, be spending a majority of our time. So if you have your, your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to that. 
Um, right? And this is a story that we are all, uh, all of us, or many of us are very familiar with. Right? And familiarity, like rhythm, like routine, um, can kind of impose a way of reading a story like this, a way of understanding a, a text like this. And in doing so, we kind of miss some key details and features of the story. Right? See, this is a story about an encounter that Jesus has with a Samaritan woman. Right? And for many of us know uh, that this woman in the story, as she's presented, has kind of the scandalous past. Right? She carries a lot of baggage with her. Uh, And as we read through the story, uh, many times we often key in on those details, right? This story is about, uh, is about primarily about grace, right? It's about Jesus going to a woman in need of grace and extending grace to her. Um, And certainly that is absolutely part of the story. But today I wonder, as we go through the story, might we see something a little bit more going on, something bigger going on behind the scenes. So as we, as we read through this story, read through this encounter, I want you to tune your attention to the idea of worship. All right, listen for how this issue actually drives the events of the story and how it actually becomes Jesus' primary concern in his interaction with this woman. Right, so John 4, it begins with a journey. Right, Jesus is on his way back to Galilee after stirring up some, some, some controversy, stirring up some, some stuff with the Pharisees um, in Jerusalem. Uh, he, he's, he's heading home, and he makes this intentional decision to travel back home uh, through, uh, through Ga- or front, or to Galilee through Samaria. Right, this is not a common thing that Jews of the time would do, as we're going to uh, see here uh, in just a minute. But let's pick up the story in, in verse 5. Uh, So in verse 5, it says this, He, Jesus, came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. Right, John is establishing the setting for us, the context of the story. It's the middle of the day, it's hot, uh, Jesus is tired, uh, which in reality is kind of a wild thing to think about, uh, right? Because Jesus, what we're seeing here is Jesus, the God-man, Jesus is both God and man, and God doesn't just experience things willy-nilly. God only experiences what he chooses to experience. So when we read about Jesus do- doing things like getting tired, needing water, needing food, like Know that God is choosing to experience the same limitations that you and I experience every day. Like he's choosing to do this so that you and I can see he knows us. And so just this little detail, right? There's so much context in that. All right, we're told about this well, right? We're told that the reason, uh, in fact, uh, we're, we're told about this well, in fact, because this well is a real place. Right, this is, a, this is an actual well that you and I, if you wanted to, with enough time, enough money, enough resources, you can go and you can sit by this same well. You can drop a bucket. There's still water in it today. And why does that matter? Well, because oftentimes when we talk about things like gods, when we talk about deities and divinity, um, all of our stories, like, they, they just end up in this metaphorical, kind of like hypothetical, uh, mystical world, right? We tell stories about Olympus and the realms uh, of gods in these fantastical places uh, and the divine homes among the stars. But here in the Gospel of John, in our scriptures, we see something different. We see real people in real places, Jesus is not uh, from some galaxy far, far away with cloud cities, centaurs, and other mythical creatures. Jesus is here in our world. 
right? He walked, taught, and lived in places that you and I can go to. See, a common answer that our culture has, has created uh, as this way to respond to God uh, is what we might call this agnostic skepticism, right? Perhaps God is like this, maybe God does that, and God might have these attributes, uh, but then you know, at the end of the day, we don't know, right? We can't know for sure because it's just God is some far-off mystical being, and so uh, because we, we can't know for sure, we remain unconvinced. And See, the problem is that when God remains this hypothetical being, uh, we can theorize and, and think and, and, and talk about all we want about the possibilities of a life with God without actually having to do anything about it. But the Gospels insist time and time again that Jesus dealt with real people in real places. And that demands an actual response from us. The way we live our lives that's the response it demands. It demands us to rethink those. And one of these real people we meet here in John chapter 4, verse 7. All right, a woman uh, of Samaria came to draw water. All right, here we f- see our first routine in the story. All right, everyone's got to eat, everyone's got to drink. You know, just like you and I go to the grocery store, uh, this woman is just going about her day. And her usual rhythm and routine, like there's nothing special, there's nothing uh, like odd, uh, nothing out of the ordinary. Until, verse 8, or the last part of verse 7. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy her food. Well, that's different. Right, here we we see why in verse 9. How is it, sir, uh, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked. For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Right, see, when God interrupts our routines, the first thing we experience is this sort of uh, disorientation, right? This, this divergence from what we expected. See, in this context, men don't normally talk uh, to women they don't know. Jewish men certainly don't talk to Samaritan women. So the initial, we'll say, awkwardness of this encounter has been established fairly strongly, right? But Jesus decides uh, to kick this up a notch. Verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Who is this guy? Right? If somebody walked up to you in Kroger and laid a line like this, like how many of us were like, okay, well, I'm just leaving the store. Like we're just like resetting the day. Like this is not how, like I'm not even, not even taking part, right? Nope, nope, nope. Not for me. Not today. Right, but this list, not this lady, right? She's got some fire in her. Um, I, I think the technical term is sass, um, or at least that's what we, we, that's, uh, what we see in our two-year-old. Um, right, she starts to engage with Jesus. She starts this little back and forth. Oh, you picked the wrong lady on the wrong day uh, to mess with this. Well, hey, Jesus, it's a deep well. How are you going to get any water? What are you dropping down there? Uh, look at you, Mr. High and Mighty. Like, if you can solve all, the, all of life's problems, then just go ahead and do it already. Right? Who are you to say this to me, Jesus? Like, who are you to judge me is essentially uh, her message to Jesus. But Jesus, right, Jesus doesn't, doesn't back off, right? He comes right back at her. 
Right? He's trying to help her understand um, this idea of God's judgment and what it actually brings. And it's actually how God's judgment is not something to be feared, but it actually brings the very things that she desires. Right? It brings life. Right? He's trying to help her see, uh, just like you and I, that the thing we're most afraid to face when it comes to God uh, is actually the source of our everlasting security. That God's judgment on sin is actually the beginning of our life. So Jesus has piqued her curiosity, uh, but he doesn't quite have her full attention. Uh, so he has, to, he has to just make sure she understands who she's dealing with. Uh, John 4, verse 16, go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. All right, things just went from awkward, uh, slightly confrontational, straight to personal, right? And with each progression of this conversation, right, this woman's eyes are opened, right? Now all of the defense mechanisms she's tried to kind of hide behind, uh, all of them fall away, and she realizes uh, she's not dealing with a run-of-the-mill person here. But she has to try to save face, right? And so verse 17, like, I don't, I don't, I don't have a husband. Uh, she answered him, she, you know, Shut, trying to shut this conversation down as quick as possible. But Jesus' response in verse 17. Right, you have said correctly, I don't have a husband, Jesus said. For you had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Silence, right, at least for a moment. Right, there's this, this, this powerful verse in Hebrews uh, where the author tells us that it's a terrifying thing uh, to fall into the hands of the living God. And I think this is what he's talking about. Right, because suddenly this woman is face to face with a person who a moment ago wasn't even worth serious consideration. And now that the blinders have come off, some, suddenly something divine has come into focus. Right, but not divine as like the soft, cuddly baby angel floating in the clouds, uh, like biblical divine. Right, like terrifying and intimidating because you realize that you're talking to somebody, you're dealing with somebody that you have zero control or power over. Right, that they have complete control of the situation and you are completely at the mercy of this stranger. Right, but Jesus shows himself to be so much more than, than just some awkward stranger. Right? He doesn't say this cruelly or out of condemnation. No, Jesus here is like a parent right, who's, who's caught a child in, in a little bit of a lie and is now is trying to restore them. Right? And suddenly this woman realizes that she has no secrets. Right? She is in the presence of someone who knows her true self, who knows everything about her. And she realizes how vulnerable she is. God has to be behind this, she figures. And maybe this man knows what God wants me to do. Verse 19, sir, she said, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Right? She, she sees that God is at work and recognizes that this requires some kind of response for her, but how and what? Right? She has her rhythm and her routine of worship, uh, but somehow what she's always done doesn't quite feel adequate. Right? Something has changed. Uh, even if she showed up to her normal worship, it just wouldn't be uh, worship as usual. And Jesus confirmed that. 
Or verse 21, uh, Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship uh, what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. Right, so Jesus doesn't demean, he doesn't talk down uh, to her uh, for not knowing what she doesn't know. He, so for so many of us, when God shows up in our life, uh, we have to understand that he's not looking for an explanation or, an, or, an, or a justification from what we've, for what we've done. When instead, God is inviting us into something more. God is inviting us into a new future, a new life. And it's not about what you've done or even what someone else has done. It's about what God is doing. Something worth, also worth, uh, worth noting here uh, in, these, in these verses, in verse 21 and 22. Right, a change is coming even for those who are, quote-unquote, in the know. Right, Jesus says, uh, you'll worship neither on this mountain or... In Jerusalem, like what's in Jerusalem? Who worships in Jerusalem? The Jews, right? The very people who recognize uh, God, who recognize God as God and worship God as God. Even the people who, quote unquote, have their spiritual house in order, who know and worship God as God has instructed them to do so far, even for them, an awakening is coming. Right, God is getting ready to shake everyone out of uh, the spiritual complacency to shake everyone out of dead ritual and establish a new understanding for what it means to worship him. Verse 23. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. This right here is is the thesis of this whole section, right? This is the point that Jesus is trying to make. This right here is why he had to come to this well on this day, why he made the intentional decision to break from Jewish uh, ritual, Jewish routine of avoiding this area. But he came to this woman so that... so that she, her, so that, and, and his disciples, even down to you and I today, because this, this story is preserved for us in Scripture, it's all to help us understand and to see the kind of worship God is inviting us into. Right? We all buy into the power of ritual, right? especially when it comes to faith, especially when it comes to worship. Right? We don't want to get it wrong. Right? And so we figure, hey, there's power in numbers. If, if everybody's been doing it this way, there must be something good, must be something true in that, so let's just do what everybody's done. Right? And there's also something to this, well, the more, the more proper, the more formal, like the more official it must be, right? the more acceptable we think it is, as if God is somehow impressed with our vocabulary. But Jesus here paints a different picture. True worshipers, he says, will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Right now, if you indulge me for just a, just a few minutes, I don't uh, often like to unpack uh, uh, language in this kind of setting because sometimes it just kind of muddies the water a bit. Um, but, but there's something truly fascinating kind of at work here. And so uh, the New Testament, as you may know, it, it, like here in the Gospel of John, uh, it's not written in English. Initially, it's written in what we call Koine uh, Greek or common Greek. And we say common is common of the time. 
right? This isn't the kind of uh, formal academic language, right? This isn't the language of research papers or public speeches or, or laws or anything like this. This is, this is the language you just overhear in, in coffee shops and breweries, at restaurants and parks. Like, this is just everyday language that people use. And uh, the interesting thing about this particular form of the Greek language is, that, uh, is how rich and, and, and meaningful words are. See, we actually, in in modern English, we have uh, many more words, many more uh, grammatical forms and uh, linguistic means of getting our point across. But strangely enough, this form of ancient Greek is actually far more expressive than many of our modern languages. It communicates intention, emotion, and heart a lot better than we naturally can. So there's, there's three words I really want us to, to, to kind of zoom in on for just a second. The first one there, worship. So worship is the word proskuneo. Proskuneo. Is a, it, this is a compound word. It's a combination of two different words. Pros is a, is a preposition. It means uh, two towards or with. Uh, and then the second word there is the word kineo. Kineo actually means uh, to kiss. Right, but it's not though. Not like like uh, you and I. It's not like human. So this is actually the word uh, used to describe when a like a, when a dog kisses your hand. Right, and so think of that. Right, like this this unrestrained affection, and that's the idea uh, of of worship in describing this act that God so desires uh, for His people. The the word that He comes to is this idea of 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 falling before, of heading to this, just this unrestrained affection. And also in describing this act, uh, Jesus removes kind of this qualitative or, or ritualistic measures and instead he gives us two quantitative, or excuse me, qualitative measures. He removes the quantitative, I get those confused all the time. So it's not about how much or what, but it's about the quality of what we're engaging with. And he gives us two kind of measures for that. The first one he says is in spirit, right? It's the word pneumati. Uh, this, is the, this is the adjective form. It's the descriptive form of the word, the noun pneuma. That's where we get spirit, soul, uh, breath, and wind. Right? It's how people of the ancient world described their inner life. And so the connotation here is that the response of worship, this unrestrained affection, is something that you see uh, not somewhere else. Right, It's not something that someone else is doing for you, but it actually comes from the deepest part of your being. That's where it starts. And so for Jesus, worship becomes less and less about an external set of actions and more about the internal orientation of our hearts. And the second quality uh, Jesus uh, gives us is, the, the, is truth, right? And it's the word aletheia. Aletheia, now it's important to understand, uh, this is not truth from the standpoint of correspondence, Right, it's not factual accuracy. This is not one plus one equals two. Aletheia is truth from the standpoint of congruence, alignment, or the, the word we would use is integrity. And so Jesus here is saying that true worship is not about getting your facts straight or about having the right answers. It's about the wholeness, the unity of the being that you bring in to that worship, this undivided whole that you bring into worship. And so when you pull these threads together, the picture that emerges from John 4 here is that true worship is this undivided, 
soul-level response of unrestrained trust and affection directed at God, not dependent on place or time. And, you know, just like you and I, this, this breaks the category for our Samaritan friend. Right, No one in her life had ever explained what's happening in worship like this man had. Right, No one in her life had come up with this kind of, of understanding what God was doing. Right, How did he come to such knowledge? How is, he, how is he both so unique in his explanation and reassuring? Uh, she, she, she couldn't come up with an answer for that, but she had heard about someone that was coming someone that was yet to come, someone that God would send. And not just to one people, right, but to all people. And so John uh, 4, verse 25, the woman said to him, said to Jesus, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Verse 26, Jesus told her, I, the one who is speaking to you, Am he. Right, and now the picture is complete. Right, now we see the fullness of what God is doing. Not that she understands or like any of us really understand everything that's going on because that goes so far beyond any of us. But she sees it with her own eyes and hears it with her own, own ears. The Messiah, Christ, is here. And her journey is ultimately our journey as well. Because the truth is that for us, uh, true worship is worship that leads us to Jesus. And not a Jesus that, that we're comfortable with or safe with, but Jesus as he actually is, the Messiah And as we lean into this responsive worship, when we bring our whole undivided selves to this this act, uh, like the woman, we discover that our worship actually leads us into a deeper understanding, a deeper awareness of what God has done and what God is continuing to do. And so then we see her response a couple verses later as she begins to to understand what this means for her, what this means for her community. In verse 28, right, the woman left her water jar. She, She abandoned her routine. She abandoned her whole reason for going out there. She went back into town and told people, come, see the man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? See, the, the hook today, when we talk about true worship, is this. The, 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 we're called to, to worship like we mean it. To, to do what this woman has done, to leave routines and expectations, and to understand, uh, to see, to, to try to grasp, and, and take steps towards who God is and what God is doing among us. It's to bring our whole undivided selves before the God who made us the God who saved us. Because what is at stake when we come to worship is not just uh, some standing that we have uh, with a certain group, right? It's not about reputation. But what, what is at stake when you come into this place, when we, when we gather, when we, we have opportunities to worship, uh, to, to, to fix our eyes on what God is doing, right? It goes so far beyond what is happening in this room. See, in and through Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God is at work remaking and renewing all things. And our worship 
is this unrestrained, awe-filled, lifelong response to this incredible work. I'm going to pray for us. And we're going to have an opportunity as a church family to respond one more time this morning uh, in, 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 some, in corporately worshiping that God who's at work among us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for this time that we have to let uh, our expectations, our routines, our, our normal rhythms uh, just fall away. And God, our, 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 our request is simple just for the next few minutes as we have opportunity together as a church family is that uh, you would take everything that we brought into this room this morning, that you would help us to set it aside, to give our full, undivided attention, affection, trust, and love to you in this moment. God, would you work powerfully uh, in us? Would you work um, in ways that only you can work and do what only you can do? We love you, God. We trust you. And we pray all this in the name of your Son and our Savior. Amen.